that you have all these hundreds of bright minds all focused at precisely the same thing when nothing is happening. You're watching a Chia pet grow here, right? Trump's gonna win by a zillion points. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, January 15th. Happy Martin Luther King Day. It is not only Media Monday on the pod, it's Iowa Caucus Day. And today, John Kelly and I discuss the hyperventilating media coverage of the caucuses and a Republican race that is actually pretty damn boring. And we dig into Bill Ackman's crusade against Business Insider, a fight with no winners, and what Ackman's endgame actually is. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy monday everybody welcome to the powers that be happy mlk day hopefully you have the day off from work today the iowa republican party holds mlk day in such high esteem that they decided to hold the iowa caucuses on mlk day ruining the holiday for a lot of us uh but you know in a state that's 89% white. What else can you expect? <laughs> John, welcome. It's Media Monday, of course. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. Busy day. Iowa, the Emmys, the Eagles and the Bucks, Martin Luther King Day. A lot happening. When I was growing up in Richmond, the state uh, celebrated the snow longer happens, thankfully. Lee Jackson King Day today, mm. uh, a hybrid Yikes, holiday honoring <laughs> Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and oh my God. Martin Luther King Jr. on the same day. Jesus Christ. That's what happens when uh, you grow up in the 
capital of the Confederacy. Uh, thankfully, they got rid of that uh, by the time I yikes. I think by the time I reached middle school, John, I want to talk to you actually about Iowa and the media coverage of this non-race that's mm-hmm. happening uh, in the Republican primary, even though the press is treating it in a hyperventilating fashion. The race for second place, that is. But first, I do want to talk to you about Bill Ackman's Jihad Against Business Insider, which has you know, been going on for about a couple of weeks now by the time we're recording this. Dylan and I talked about this the other day, last week on this podcast. What do you make of his crusade here? I mean, the I explained the backstory. Dylan's been writing about it. Basically, um, Bill Ackman is claiming that Business Insider is being anti-Semitic and sloppy and activisty for writing about his wife's uh, instances of plagiarism. She is an academic at MIT. Uh, this is a, a response to Ackman's crusade against the presidents of Harvard and elsewhere for plagiarizing passages in their academic work and all against the backdrop of his claims that campuses are being too soft on anti-Semitism. Uh, there's lots of threads to pull here, John, but what is the end game here for Bill Ackman? Does he just want to like shudder <laughs> Business Insider? I mean, like what possibly could he want? Does he want like a formal apology? Does he want them to fire like the libs in the newsroom? Like what's going on? Here, uh, you know, in your I, I, I have I have drawn three significant takeaways from this, but I'll get to in one second. But I, I it's hard not to feel since he's exhausted all of his options pretty quickly, like you know, gone to Henry Kravis, who started KKR, which owns in the control of Axel Springer, which owns BI. He's tried to sort of nuke everyone on Twitter. He writes these chilling sort of, you know, Harlan Coben style tweets where he, you know, um, (laughs) is, is putting his true feelings out there. I just have to think that his wife must be furious at him and um that this is like this is like personal for him in a, in a way that it, uh, his previous activist campaigns have uh, have not been and um there's no escaping this you know i think i, I presume his wife feels like he uh his that he's indirectly responsible for um for ruining her career in some way he's not going to stop so a, a couple things that that i've been marinating about on on this topic this week for, you know first and foremost is you nailed it. To me, some of this is not like the most elegantly presented journalism in the world. It, it does seem like they were trying to, they were looking for a scalp. They were spiking the football. They they, they wanted, you know, they, I think that there was a, also a, a conflation of terms in many cases, like Neri Oxman obviously conducted some small sloppy clerical work in a 330 page dissertation. Was it that meaningful? Should it discredit her scholarship? No. Did she do it? Yes, did did Bi overstate it? In my opinion, to- totally. Uh, but but there's no chance in the world uh, that you know, if if Ackman sues, I don't I see a court actually like throwing this out. And I think that he would appeal it and they throw it out again. I don't think that there's a case here. I don't think that there's anything defamatory. I don't think that they were. I don't think that there's any malice involved in this. Uh, I, I think that this originated in in a, a a place of public service where Ackman had helped to throw the president of Harvard over the technical claims of plagiarism. And uh, B.I. Uh, was trying to show that, that plagiarism, uh, there was some hypocrisy here that Ackman may, may not have known or felt that the plagiarism um, committed by his wife. And again, I, I sort of shudder to use that word because I think it's a lot of um, sloppy clerical work was less bothersome to him. So I, I don't I don't think that his campaign is going to be successful, but that's also not stopped him before in large activist campaigns. He's, he has run scorch earth activist campaigns 
Herbalife, Valiant, etc., that didn't always have the optimal outcome for him, and it did not stop him. So I think that that is mm-hmm. thing one. Thing two, it, it's hard for me not to remark upon this, and, and I've gotten a little bit of, of slagging for it. Business Insider, th- since its origination, has like a bit of, uh, I think, of a sort of rage of the underclass vibe to it um, in, in the work it produces. Um, it's a bottoms-up view. There's a lot of journalism you can point to about the you know, malfeasance at Carta, the the day Portnoy sex life stuff. Like it, it, there's where it's very gawkery. It's sorry, it's inflected with gawker. Yeah, and, and there's a and there's a, a, a you know John Cook, who I think is the investigations editor. Dylan pointed out was was the editor of Gawker. It um, th- there's just a gotcha ness. I, I heard uh, um, on one of Brian Morrissey's podcasts they were talking about this, and they said it too. There just is a gotcha ness. And I think that there's a world in which uh, some of this journalism could have been created, contorted, conveyed differently, would have had a very different impact, would have been um, less offensive to the Ackman Oxmans while still being true. But we did not go down that path. And I think that's just because of the institutional sort of, you know, verve of Business Insider. And then, of course, like one would be remiss to uh, to not include the fact that it is hard in this Aquin sort of Twitter uh, crusade to not feel like if you feel like this sort of uh, academic work is you know uh, is being overstated, then why didn't you provide the same sort of empathy to Claudine Gay? You know, who no one thinks in any way, shape, or form is an anti-Semite, who's someone who was so poorly advised by the lawyers at Wilmer Hale and made obviously cringeworthy comments at the behest of lawyers and who frankly the harvard corporation board supported until you know they felt like they were accountable and they started to cover their own asses could ackman mm-hmm. have extended some of that empathy would that have gone a little bit further in in quelling all this it seems like that's off the table and it's too bad because what you have here is like a situation i think where you have a media skirmish where both sides are behaving badly bi could have done a better job Almost all journalism could be I- improved in retrospect when you look at you know pieces of substance, and Ackman could have stopped his his bone rattling because he has absolutely you know basically called for the place to be flushed down the toilet, called for the job of Nick Carlson, and um, called out Henry Kravis, which I thought was a stunner. So uh, nobody looks good here. Yeah, and this is a slight detour, by the way, on the Harvard stuff. Like no one talks about the fact that that there was an editorial published in the Harvard Crimson uh, on New Year's Eve calling for Claudine Gay to resign. And I feel like for all the pressure and the board and the, you know, at least Stephonics of the world, I mean, if the student paper is calling on you to resign, that's also not insignificant. Shout out to the Crimson for also covering the shit out of that story. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on the sort of lack of grace around plagiarism. I mean, this is like a, a bottomless pit. I mean, like yeah. you can go back and forth forever finding accusations of plagiarism in academia. Dylan phrased this pretty well in his piece about all this the other day. Um, He said, the high-minded and self-important world of academia, a place where young people write multi-hundred-page dissertations that few will ever read, is presumably rife with unintentional instances of improper attribution and inaccurate citation. Uh, You know, I, I think plagiarism, accidental or intentional, is probably way more prevalent than people think of in course, academia than yes. it is in journalism. Of course. Uh, and, you know, and then the, the other side of this too, I mean, like this just the, partly because this is all playing out on Twitter slash X, I mean, like the the crimes 
being thrown back and forth here do not match the rhetoric. And I, and I think you're right about the rage of the underclass thing with business insider. It feels gawker inflected where they're like punching down or punching laterally mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of punching up. And Dylan also wrote in recent years, BI has published a considerable number of everything is a nail stories that seem to lavish an inordinate amount of reporting upon underwhelming targets, the toxic culture at Carta microaggressions at a supplements company, the mistreatment on reality mm-hmm. show sets, Etc. The back and forth with Dave Portnoy at Barstool over his sex life, which they you know knew would get clicks and happened yep. to put it behind a paywall. Yeah. <laughs> There's a tactic. So the other thing I want to ask you on this before going to break is, and I still in the same question, but I do want your opinion because you are now in the higher echelons <laughs> of media CEOs now. You know, Axel Springer came out and said in response to Ackman's complaints that they were going to investigate this and look at procedures and what happened here. Like, why do you think Axel Springer came out and said, we are going to listen to Bill Ackman here uh, and and review the newsroom's practices? Is it just because Bill Ackman is a powerful guy with friends on the board? Is that it? When I first saw that email, Dylan forwarded to me, he received it from the head of communications at Axel Springer. I thought, oof, they are really taking a knee here and they're going to they're going to roll their own people whenever you sort of open up an issue like that it, it, it looks like you're you're preparing to make a concession now what i what i've learned subsequently from dylan's reporting and, and from the reporting of bill ackman you know live on on x for all to see is it sounds like ackman immediately uh went to um the higher-ups at kkr uh spoke to the co-ceo spoke to henry kravis the co-founder you know one of the k's uh in kkr and it seems as though the uh, at that mega director level, they tried to appease him. I think they tried to let a little air out of the balloon. And it seems like they wanted to show they were taking it seriously, but that indeed the piece had gone through all the internal, um, or the pieces, I should say, had gone through all the internal checks and balances in, in, in their process. And, um, you know, they have a, a oversight, legal, et cetera. I'm, I'm, sure they, I'm sure they ran all the traps, knowing, you know, at least having a concept of what they were getting themselves into here. Now, should KKR level uh, and, and Axel level directors be, uh, you know, adjudicating these things on behalf of Business Insider? Not a great look, but I think it just shows that they underestimated the level and length of the Ackman crusade but I assume we're going to hear today or in the coming days that this they ran the traps, that this checked out. Ackman already said that Neri Oxman hired a lawyer, that they're going to respond to these things. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, on Friday, you know, a, a couple other potential instances of, of sloppy uh, citation were, were flagged. So at that point, I think it's a game of chicken. Will Ackman sue? And uh, my hunch is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier uh, in the segment, I, I don't see where uh, a suit goes here, but I, I think that you will see um, at the KKR level, at the Axel level, the BI level, that uh, everyone's going to get into line and and defend this thing. John, I want to take a quick break, come back and talk to you about the freezing cold Iowa caucuses and how the press is covering them. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back to the Powers That Be, everybody. It is Iowa caucus day. It's like in the negative 20s uh, out there in Iowa right now. Candidates, are uh, at least on Friday, we're canceling events and doing virtual town halls because it's so goddamn cold out there. I think the coldest caucus I went to is 2008. Uh, and that, that's when there was like a bunch of like fighting over the primary calendar and they moved the caucus state up to like January 3rd, like right oh, after right. Christmas. And it was just so windy and cold. But yeah, this is I've been getting a lot of texts the last few days like from people out there, reporters and Iowans <laughs> saying, "Where are you?" This is the first caucus I haven't been to in 5 cycles. And there there's a few reasons for that. And all, the only reason I'm bringing this up is I think it cuts to like my larger POV on the on the race right now, which is it's actually much more of a snoozer than the media is trying to make it. Candidates are just more sheltered. They're doing these virtual town halls. The outcome is not in doubt. If there is an exciting race, it's in New Hampshire and possibly some of the open primaries in South Carolina and Michigan after that, where theoretically Nikki Haley could try to make a stand against Donald Trump. But John, what do you make of the the media coverage of this? I mean, Donald Trump is on pace for a 30-point win. 
the biggest Iowa blowout in modern memory was 2000 when George W. Bush won the yeah. Iowa caucuses and he won by 10 and that was treated like, you know, a nail in the coffin for everybody else. And here we have Donald Trump winning by 25, 30, 40 points over Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. And it's just being treated with the intensity of like Murrow on the rooftops of London during the Blitz. Yeah. <laughs> and what what the the most interesting possible outcome here is maybe Nikki Haley moving ahead of Ron DeSantis for second place, which would effectively kill off DeSantis and then sort of make it a Trump-Haley fight in New Hampshire. But I, I don't know. I mean, like, you're not super in the weeds-weeds of political coverage, but what do you see from afar here that jumps out? Well, this you? this um, gets to a, a, us having a, a public version of a conversation that we have had many times privately about how uninnovative the news media profession often is when you think about these sort of boondoggles and you know, the reporting pools and these sort of, you know, global tent poles. And you, you think uh, how much the world has changed since this this first state caucus, you know, mm-hmm. reared its head on the map. And you, you, you made a couple of like sort of joking gestures to it in the earlier block, but it's true. Like Iowa, this small state that representationally has nothing to do with what America looks like, has this outsized role. That makes no sense. It makes no sense why the collective political media corpus of the world descends on, you know, the, the Marriott bar for all these days when nothing is happening, you know, because people want to get away from their spouses and, and kids in zero degree weather. I have no idea why. And I always just think, I, I laugh sometimes. It's just so strange to me that th- these habits are so hard to break that you have mm-hmm. all these hundreds of bright minds all focused at precisely the same thing when nothing is happening. We're, we're, you're, you're watching a Chia pet grow here, right? Trump's going to win by... A zillion points. Christie's already out. DeSantis is, it looks like he's going to go into third place and get smoked. And, you know, maybe Haley makes it close in New Hampshire with the with the Christie voters. But either way, she's going to get smoked in South Carolina. To your point, on with it. We got Biden and Trump. What are we talking about here? Like, this interstitial stuff, it's annoying. It's, it's like, insert sports metaphor, drink everyone. It, it's like when ESPN broadcasters have to breathlessly hype like a Florida State Youngstown State game in week one of the season when you know it's going to be 74 to nothing. I, it doesn't doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. It's not healthy. Uh, there's always a, an element of, well, you never know. No, 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 no. You know. You know. When something is 90% certain, you know. And so I, um, yes, one could rue the day for all kinds of reasons, but I actually like sort of view this as a um, as a failing of uh, of leadership and and sort of a broader industry trends and trends, excuse me. And I was thinking of it loud and clear earlier, um, so rather late last week, when I was watching the dual screen, Trump on Fox with Brett Baer, I guess with Martha McCallum, and then the debate between uh, mm-hmm. Sanders and Haley with, with Tapper and Dana Bash. And it just seemed to me like, Boy, were we squeezing these lemons hard. What was the point here, you know, to try and eke out some ratings? These were not events filled with any sort of surprises. Yes, I know people have to hear from the candidates, but um, it seemed like a increasingly uncertain broadcast business model relying on a very old editorial calendar uh, to create um, uh, outcomes that serve no one. Yeah, that's a really great point. Look, there's lots of um, reporters out in Iowa hustling, although I wish they would get outside of Polk County a little bit more and go to other parts of uh, Des Moines to encounter the non-college educated 
voters uh, that are probably going to dominate this caucus. But you mentioned the word boondoggle. Like I was texting with a few reporters the other night and like everyone was at Luca, which is like this like nice, cool restaurant in the East Village of Des Moines. And it's like same people, different city. Um, yeah, sure. The political media industrial complex, as long as I can remember, you know, in my institutional memory, at least goes back to 2007 when I started covering this stuff those primaries. I mean, like they were huge boons for the TV networks. Absolutely. For people like reporters climbing the ladder and, and, and breaking news and, and getting up there in their careers. Um, in part, cause those primaries were so interesting and dynamic and volatile. And you had Obama, Hillary on one side, you know, and the Republican race with McCain and Huck and all those folks that was in Romney. That was interesting too. And this time you have an incumbent, Democrat on one side who's, you know, not really doing the campaign rallies. <laughs> he's he's running from the bully pulpit. And then you've got this like lopsided Republican race and it really kills off a lot of oxygen for scoops, for media stars to, you know, make their names for for ratings. And like a, a good example of this is last week that that debate you mentioned that CNN had got basically doubled up by Fox News in their town hall with Donald Trump. That got four and a half million mm. viewers, according to Nielsen. The CNN debate, which aired at the same time, got 2.6 million viewers. Again, good for CNN these days. But the lowest rated debate of the 2019 presidential cycle was like six million. Right. Uh, and, and that was a bunch of Democrats squabbling about like, Healthcare policy <laughs> right before Christmas, um, but like those are really bad numbers for a debate, actually. And still, if you were spending your time on Twitter slash X, like the debate between Haley and DeSantis for second place for two hours, where they were talking about the debt and all these things that sounded like they were from a 2012 time capsule, um, that was the focus and fixation of most of the mainstream political press. And it was a secondary story that night to the Fox News town hall, which is staring us in the face with people getting up from the crowd and saying, I love you, Mr. Trump. <laughs> like he crushed the other folks uh, in terms of public interest. The New York Times like had a live blog from Drake University where all their reporters were like giving a blow by blow account of what was happening between DeSantis and Haley. <laughs> like, he's, li- he's like Trump's winning by 40 points. Totally. Um, again. It doesn't mean that this stuff doesn't completely matter, but like step back for a second. Nikki Haley is within 10 to 14 points of Donald Trump in New Hampshire, which is one of 50 primary and caucus states. Like there is the horse race addiction and the inability to sort of like step outside of the groupthink and just acknowledge what's staring us in the face has been just Amusing, at least to watch. I would love to go to Des Moines and see my friends, talk to sources this cycle. Um, but like I did my Iowa travel this cycle and I don't know what's to be gained for me, perhaps as an individual journalist from being there for the last four days for the gangbang with all the other reporters coming in from DC, uh, you know, just watching the same stuff unfold on their screens. Um, you know, I, I'm happy to be wrong, but... I'm excited to go next cycle, perhaps, when there's more excitement to be Well, had. I take it even one step further here, and I, I hope I'm not being duplicative, but, you know, the the great sort of meta story in 2016 was that 
Trump really, you know, he, he may have uh, exploited the vulnerabilities of, of um, a number of, uh, of voting blocks, particularly you mentioned the uh, non-college educated whites. He also exploited the vulnerabilities of uh, the media class in what was then the sort of pivot from printish to, to digitalish. I mean, you know, where the the sort of virality craze, and and he was able to um, he pro- he provided a salvo in a lot of ways that that people found intoxicating, even if they knew better, and many many did, um, and found themselves breathlessly publishing, you know, sort of micro scoopery. That would have never made it into a previous world, but but they felt like in this declining business model that many of them were in, they needed it to 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 mm-hmm. get ahead and survive. And um, I can't help but feel a, a similar yet different vulnerability at play here now too, which is that there, you know, I, I don't want to hypothesize the number of, of working journalists uh, that are covering this race, especially that are there in Iowa, but when there's when there's very little going on, you tend to see things that are a little troublesome, like articles on, on uh, media properties that you respect that are just like, it's more than horse racing. It's micro turn the screw stuff that um, really they know better than to say, oh, you know, Haley's, you know, poll in a new poll of a new poll shows she might be within, you know, a margin of error of some margin of error of whatever. And you're like, oh, come on, dude. Like, there's an insecurity that comes out in the work as many, many people cover what is becoming sort of a worm race. And it's dispiriting. And I really do think that a lot of this comes down to business models. I I don't think that um, this happened 20 or 30 years ago when there were plenty of, you know, boring moments in politics are not new. It's happened before many times. Um, there was a sort of confidence in the coverage that I think uh, reflected the fact that people uh, were not as insecure about the, the fates of their jobs and their institutions. Don't forget, mm-hmm. like, it is unusual, Peter, that we hear about huge cost cuts and layoffs. NBC News just laid off 100 people. The Post just took 240. This never happens during election cycles. This is when media companies get bigger. They downsize after them. But the fact that they're downsizing into an election cycle, spooky stuff, man. Um, and I think it, it tells you that, that mm-hmm. the um, the reorientation of the industry is really um, uh, mid-flight. That's a very smart point. And I hypothesized in my my column for the Best and the Brightest last Monday about all this, that news avoidance is now rivaling mm-hmm. uh, revenue as like one of the biggest challenges for news organizations. And those things are obviously correlated. But like according to Gallup right now, like only 31% of Americans are following political news closely. That is reverting to pre-Trump levels, um, but it's even lower among 18 to 49 year olds who are barely following political news. And so, you know, the the public interest in all of this stuff is just not there like it used to be. And, you know, to the extent there is interest, uh, if your eyeballs are migrating to a million different sources from YouTube to, you know, social media feeds to, you know, push alerts and group chats and like, you know, the mainstream news organizations are are one piece of the larger puzzle rather than the center of the universe. All right, man. Well, uh, Tara and I will be recording a post-game yeah, Iowa poor pod. Tara. She's come suffering in right tomorrow. now in this sub-frigid weather. I feel terrible for her. <laughs> Cost of doing business yeah, that's true. sometimes. That's true. John, thanks so much, buddy. All right, man. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. 
As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.